Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm David. Today, on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report on a new firearm safety and gun buyback program being created by the Albany County Legislature. Then, Marsha Lazarus talks with Chef Germaine Wright. Later on, new book suggestions for adults from the Troy Library. After that, Electronic Disturbance Theater 2.0 reflect on their event workshop at the Sanctuary last week. Finally, Tom Francis highlights poet Mary Panza and her poem, We're Barefoot People. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that despite reporting record earnings last week, Saratoga County chipmaker Global Foundries is planning uh, company-wide job cuts and hiring freeze, contributing to uncertainty over if and when it will build a second factory in Malta. The chipmaker also said that expanding its existing Malta factory and upgrading its Vermont factory are priorities before building the second factory. The Albany County Legislature plans to create a new program aimed at firearm safety and reducing illegal guns in the county. The Discover program would fund a gun buyback program, distribute free gun locks, create a confidential tip line for illegal illegal firearms, as well as institute handgun safety courses through the Albany County Sheriff's Office. The Gazette reports that the town of Rotterdam will introduce legislation establishing a 12-month moratorium on solar arrays following public outcry over a proposed 20-megawatt array along Sanborn Road. Around half a dozen residents recently urged lawmakers to implement the moratorium in order to develop new regulations that align with a comprehensive plan the town is expected to adopt in the coming weeks, the head of the United Nations, speaking at the World Climate Gathering in Egypt, again warned government leaders that they are not doing anywhere enough to avoid climate collapse. The Capital District YMCA recently announced the intent to open a preschool center at the Capital Region BOCES campus near the Albany International Airport for 15 three- to five-year-old children. Part-time and full-time spots will both be available. The Rensselaer County Department of Youth has again teamed up with DeMeo's Liquor Store for its 26th annual toy drive. In 2021, the department received 94 referrals for 252 kids. Typically, each kid will receive two to three gifts apiece. That's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. The Albany County Legislator, 
has created the Discover program. We heard about that in our headlines, aimed at firearm safety and reducing illegal guns in the county. The program will fund a gun payback program, distribute free gun locks, create a confidential tip line for illegal firearms, as well as institute handgun safety courses throughout the Albany County Sheriff's Office. Dustin Reedy, one of the bill's main supporters, spoke with Mark Dunley. We're joined by Albany County legislator Dustin Reedy, um, who has gotten the county legislature to uh, support a, a new program aimed at uh, firearm safety and reducing illegal guns in the county. So, Dustin, can you walk through the, the program and what it is designed to do? Absolutely, Mark, and thanks for having me on. Uh, the Discover program, uh, which we passed on Monday evening, um, it uh, has three main components. Uh, it's going to set up an anonymous tip line uh, where individuals, uh, if they call in with information that leads to the seizure of an illegally possessed firearm, uh, it'll give uh, folks a financial incentive to do so. Uh, we will be doing gun buyback and gun lock giveaway events throughout Albany County. And uh, we will be uh, setting up uh, pistol permit training courses. And uh, all of these, all, all, all the Discover program uh, will be done in conjunction with the Albany County Sheriff's Department. So they will be administering that anonymous gun tip line. Uh, they will be uh, you know, uh, administering the pistol safety uh, permit training courses. And uh, they will be doing the gun buyback and gun lock giveaway events uh, with us uh, on the, at the legislature. Now, will the, the handgun safety course, is that a requirement for people to have handguns or is that just more a voluntary uh, type of approach? No, it, it's for the required uh, course that you have to take to get your pistol permit. Um, and uh, the state laws that were passed earlier this year, uh, it's now a 16 hour course to get your mm. pistol permit. Uh, the and the cost uh, and the waiting time on these courses have gone up, uh, you know, along with some other things with inflation from the pandemic. So, uh, you know, doing this uh, will give uh, more people access um, and uh, we'll just make it uh, easier for folks to, um, you know, take their training course and uh, help promote responsible gun ownership here in Albany County. You know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. Uh, he's a gun owner. He's a hunter. Uh, I think he also has a handgun. And, you know, he explained, you know, 30 years ago when, when he first started uh, with, with having a gun, he, you know, he said, you know, I was a member of the NRA because at that point, the NRA was about gun safety and, and how to use guns properly. And, and now it's just been you know, taken over by the gun manufacturers to just promote more sales of, of guns, and I, he, he no longer likes them. Uh, did the NRA raise any concerns about this proposed law? Uh, not not, uh, not that I've seen. You know, I, I agree with your friend. Um, you know, the fact is, gun violence is a public health emergency here in the United States. Uh, we need to work at, sorry, we need to work at every level of government to uh, reduce the horrific cost of uh, gun violence. Um, you know, at the county level, uh, it's not within our jurisdiction to, uh, you know, do some of the measures we need to take when it comes to getting assault rifles off of the streets um, and uh, banning weapons of war. 
um, dealing with, you know, large capacity magazines. Uh, you know, the, those are things the state and federal government can act on. Uh, but what we did last night, I think it's an important thing that we can do in Albany County. And, uh, and, and I do want to note that uh, this measure had full bipartisan support. Uh, every member of the legislature signed on as a co-sponsor last night. Uh, the fact is, uh, you know, helping reduce the cost of gun violence is going to take all of us working towards that. And, uh, and last night, uh, we took a solid step, uh, and I was very proud to have every member of the legislature um, sign on to this and uh, make this a unified effort from, from our part. Now, is this a new approach, or is this something that other communities have, have utilized previously that, uh, you know, you're bringing to Albany County? Well, uh, gun buybacks have been done. And, uh, you know, there, there are anonymous tip lines and then so, uh, you know, for, for uh, reporting crimes. Um, so I think the ideas in here, you know, they're not wholly unique and original, but uh, we're giving a $500 reward uh, for information that leads to the seizure of an illegal weapon. Um, you know, we're going to start promoting this. And, uh, and I think coupling gun buybacks with giving gun locks away. Um, that's just a solid step to promote uh, gun safety. Um, so, you know, th these are things that have been done, but uh, this program, you know, it's a comprehensive and, uh, sub you know, substantial, uh, substantial measure, um, you know, to help, uh, to help on gun safety and, and gun violence. Now, one of the parts of this program is uh, distribution of, of free gun locks. You know, what are some of the advice, you know, for, you know, a, a parent who owns a gun and but wants to make sure that it doesn't, the child doesn't get access to it or doesn't end up being used in a domestic violence situation or things of that nature? Well, uh, there's lots of great information if folks go to uh, look up the Everytown for Gun Safety group. Um, they have a, a, a plethora of, of good tips when it comes to safe gun storage. Um, the fact is, uh, there's still a large percentage of folks who do not safely lock and store their guns. So, uh, and, and that's part of the thinking behind giving these gun locks away at events throughout the county with our sheriff's department is to, uh, you know, have our sheriffs on hand uh, that can answer those questions at well at these events. And, uh, and also having the sheriff's department do the pistol safety training courses. Uh, you know, these will be available for free. Uh, we'll be covering the cost of them. So if there's uh, any gun owners out there in Albany County that want to touch up on uh, their gun safety, um, once we start these, they will be able to come uh, to our sheriff's department uh, for these courses and, uh, you know, get some, get some review or, uh, or get their initial uh, pistol permit course that they need to have. Now, there's certainly been a lot of attention. You know, it, it appears to be a, a rise in uh, incidents of uh, the use of guns, particularly in the city of, of Albany. Uh, some of the other urban areas, city of Troy has that as well. Is this going to be able to deal with some of that, you know, increased use of, of, of gun violence in the city of Albany? Well, I think that uh, the gun violence is uh, it's a problem for the entire county. I mean, it's a problem for the entire state, our entire country. You know, I, I don't think it's just, you know, there's a lot of violence that happens in the city of Albany. You know, there's a shooting earlier this week. Um, 
But uh, you know, the fact is, there, there are many folks who come from outside the city of Albany and Albany County that come in and end up perpetrating violence uh, in the city of Albany. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think of this problem as uh, just within the city, but uh, this is a countywide program and uh, it is a countywide effort. So I, I'm hoping and believe that uh, the Discover program, you know, could help reduce gun violence within the city of Albany, but uh, it will also help reduce gun violence within uh, Albany County itself. Now, you mentioned earlier that it you know, tends to be the federal and state government has more of a lead role on, on gun control. But are there other things that, you know, Albany County may be looking at, you know, in the future to try to deal the issue with uh, gun violence? Well, we're, we're continuing to work to find everything we can do to take this issue on. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't have anything uh, that I'm working on, uh, you know, get, getting out there uh, at the present moment. But uh, I'm continuing to have conversations with uh, legislators, um, you know, on both the majority and from the minority uh, caucus. Um, you know, this is a huge uh, public health crisis that we have from gun violence. And, uh, you know, we, we have to continue to do everything we can. Um, so I'm going to keep working on this, keep working on this with my colleagues and, you uh, uh, I hope very soon we'll have something else we'll be able to do and, uh, you know, to talk about uh, with you, Mark, uh, once we once we uh, put it up for a vote. So we have about 25 seconds left. Any other interesting things you're going to be pushing at the uh, county level? Uh, we're getting past our budget right now, and uh, we're in the midst of uh, seeing what our next redistricting map is going to look like. So, uh, you know, the, the two bigger, uh, bigger things to get through. And, um, you know, I'm uh, confident we're going to put forward and uh, agree upon a good budget uh, with the county executives team um, and confident uh, we'll have good maps for legislators to uh, start knocking on doors because we're uh, all up for re-election next year. We've been talking with Dustin Reedy, Albany County Legislator. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. If you live in Albany County, you will want to find out more about the Discover program and help to support firearm safety. Next, producer Marshall Lazarus interviewed Jermaine Wright, a personal chef, entrepreneur, and owner of Eight Count Kitchen, also hip-hop dance instructor and marketing consultant. Look, I think the same way that, I mean, we just passed Halloween Town, but in a, in a lot of Halloween movies or witch movies, there's like the natural witches and then the witches who are taught witchcraft. And I want to say like, if it came to cooking, I'm like a natural witch. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, I guess we can call it a calling. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus and I'm sitting here with Jermaine Wright. Jermaine is a personal chef. He's also the owner and founder of Eight Count Kitchen. He is a hip-hop dance instructor and the marketing director of a workforce development agency serving youth. Wow, such different roles. And I imagine, Jermaine, that each requires very different skills and different talents. It's interesting. I think that each role requires a certain level or different style or different set of skills. But I do think that in many ways, because a lot of them or all of them both use both my creative side of my brain and my analytical side of my brain, that in some way it all kind of works. 
So you earned a bachelor's degree from SUNY Albany in rhetoric and communications mm -hmm. and a master's degree also from SUNY Albany in organizational communication and branding. When and how did you discover this passion for cooking? So the story I love to share is kind of when the culinary bug bit me, if you will. Um, when I was younger, um, I remember always being a fat kid at heart and a hungry kid at heart. Um, you know, one of the things that my mom always taught me is she said, learn to cook because you never want to rely on somebody or a partner to cook for you. And I thought that that was super important. So I remember back in the day, I grew up in Southside Jamaica, Queens, um, in a low income neighborhood and community. It's interesting because my mom wasn't the type of mom to really make, I don't know, a pot of spaghetti for, for the kids. She really was like, I just remember being young and having like really fancy fishes or, or different types of fish. Um, you know, she would make her own duck sauce for duck. Um, she would, I remember having like orange or mandarin, well, orange slices as garnish on certain things. And I think that that really seeing that growing up is almost, it almost became, I, wanna, I don't know, I guess what I was used to, so kind of standard. And it's not like every single plate was fancy, but I know that my mom always put an extra piece of love um, into what she was doing. So I think that somewhere between me loving food, um, me experimenting with food at a very young age, you know, I used to always be the person on the block who would, uh, parents would yell at me because I would go to my friend's house and cook up all their food <laughs> for, all of, uh, for all of their kids and my friends. Um, but then when they realize it tastes good, it's like you really can't do that much yelling. So um, I, I would say some combination of all of those things really um, kind of put me on the map, I guess, or, or awaken that culinary bug that, that bit me. So. And how old were you, Jermaine, when you actually started experimenting with cooking? Yeah, I will say I probably made my first meal at 11, my first successful meal at 11. I want to say I probably first started cooking and experimenting around like eight or nine. I read also that you were selected to be on the Food Network's TV show, All-Star Academy. That is correct. And that you you became a part of Ramey Martin's Circle of Centaurs. So Food Network, long story short, um, I was selected out of thousands or insert large amount of people here uh, to compete against like non-talented uh, home chefs from across America or around America. Um, and I was mentored by celebrity chef Robert Irvine during that process, which was cool. He's really tough. Um, so you can imagine I was probably a little bit of the drama on the show. But um, moving beyond that, as far as Remy uh, Martin, so Remy Martin is a cognac brand. And um, they, long story short, there was a circle of centaurs, uh, Remy Martin's hashtag Remy Chef competition. And long story short, you had to submit a recipe of some sort that paired well with their their um, cognac, long story short, I made like top 100, then I made top 50, then top 10, fast forward, then top five, then top three, and then I won. So, and then with that came, there was a huge press event. Um, and with that came an opportunity to win a mentorship with celebrity chef and iron chef, Mark Forgione. Um, and then I had to prepare that dish for 300 guests along his entire team um, to celebrate me, I guess, and the winning dish. Um, and I actually received, I'll just do this because we're talking about it, but they actually gave me like an engraved bottle with my name on it for winning, um, which was pretty awesome. 
and uh, it was a great time. And, you know, he's still my mentor to this day. You know, I've worked for his restaurant um, most recently called Peasant, uh, which is an Italian wood fire grill restaurant that he kind of um, acquired or took ownership over. So I kind of helped them open it um, right during the pandemic, actually. Um, so I would travel from Albany to New York City every week, couch surf. Uh, literally work for free, actually, um, because I wanted him to just, it's, it's more about a knowledge and soaking it up and let him know that I'm here for this and not really for the money. Um, and, I, and I hope that that passion and that tenacity speaks volumes to my work ethic, who I am as a person, who I am as an entrepreneur, who I am as the, all of the things. And um, yeah, that that's the whole Remy Martin thing, so. Would you say the culinary skills that you have built was that were those largely gained through the mentoring of these experienced chefs i think that it's a huge combination a combination of you know i would say that um things don't happen for us if we don't do the work and a big part of that is taking time to read books and watch videos and learn and have what i call very often test kitchens um and making sure that you know i'll try it's an interesting thing about me too, is I don't follow recipes. This is an interesting fact about me. I don't. Something about it makes me feel like I'm in a box, which is why I don't net, I don't always do well when it comes to baking because I have to follow a recipe. And if I add one more, or if I add a, a little bit more cocoa powder, the entire recipe is off. So what I would do is I would go through YouTube and just watch a video or two, get it down pat, and then add my own spin to it. Um, you know, back to uh, abstract to some traditional classics. Um, you know, so I would say it's a culmination and combination of all the things. It's being self-taught, it's reading books, it's watching videos, it's practicing, it's um, practicing making progress, not perfect. And then it's also being able to be mentored by these amazing celebrity chefs. Um, and then even some that, are, that aren't celebrity chefs. You know, recently, a lot of people don't know this, but I uh, worked in at Black and Blue for a while in their kitchen. Um, you know, I walked in one day and said, hey, do you need help in the kitchen? I know the industry is down. You don't have to pay me. They paid me, which was nice. But, um, you know, and it was uh, I jumped in and um, they originally had me starting as a prep chef. And then um, I told them, I said, hey, I want to work on the line. And somebody didn't call in. And he said, you're on the line. And then there I was on my first station and then doing that um, back to back for a little bit of time. So I would say it's it's all the things it's working for free. It's learning. It's taking time, it's spending time, it's working on the mentors, it's, you know, being courageous and, and having the courage enough to create my own experiences, which I forgot to mention. One of the biggest things about Eight Count Kitchen is our own experiences. You know, if you don't have something special to celebrate or maybe the financial means to afford a luxury service, guess what? I have an event that I'm going to throw for you. We still get an opportunity to taste my food. Um, you know, one I was doing were these supper clubs, if you will, um, or these really small, in, smaller, intimate events called the Taste Of. We did a taste of luxury then we did a taste of soul and then we we're going to continue out the taste of and insert a different type of uh cuisine here taste of mexico taste of italy etc and i have those that i was doing um pretty frequently and then prior to the pandemic i was also throwing arm brunches um which was a huge event which was always sold out with about 75 plus people there where i do a gourmet brunch buffet in front of everybody with unlimited mimosas and you know, champagne and bellinis and, you know, up until a certain amount of time, there's music and a DJ is dancing, there's vision boards and all types of things. And, you know, I do my intro and my thing and people eat and have a great time. And that's the best way to celebrate who I am as a dancer and a chef by creating a live experience to so watch me cook in front of you where that's part of your experience. You see exactly how we're handling your food, how cleanly we're being. And then you put on some music and we all dance and groove and have a great time. Um, 
And uh, those are the, those, again, the culmination of all of those things helped me get to where I am. Tune back in later this week to hear more of Marsha Lazarus' conversation with Jermaine Wright. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm David. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Looking for a new book suggestion? Ian Hawk, <clears throat> Head Reference and Adult Services at Troy Public Library, shares three interesting options. The Farmer's Lawyer, The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe, and How Do We Relationship? This is produced by Bria Breth. Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, this is Bria Barthel, and I'm back once again with Ian Hauk, Head of Reference and Adult Services at Troy Public Library. Ian, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. And I see you've got some interesting choices for us yet again, so let's get started. What's your first pick for a book this month? So my first pick is called The Farmer's Lawyer by Sarah Vogel, uh, who is the author and um, the main person in the story. She was a young lawyer in the 80s um, representing farmers in North Dakota who were in constant legal trouble of losing their farms. Um, and she took the interesting approach to help them keep their families' farms by actually reporting it as a constitutional rights matter to the um, Justice Department, um, hearkening back to the old farmers' aid programs that began in the 1930s. She wondered why it had changed so much, and um, it was because of the Farmers' Housing Administration programs um, and how confusing it can be. We all know sometimes when the legalese gets in the way of the understanding, there's a uh, striking moment in the story early on where the farmers she's speaking to believe that their cows are basically on loan and that they do not own them. They're owned by the Farming Housing Administration. But she is able to explain to him is, no, they're your cows. They're just collateral for the loan you took out from the administration. This topic of farmers' um, rights and, and farmer issues seems especially appropriate now where in New York State we're losing so many of the smaller farms and even the mid-sized farms. Yes, the uh, idea of a family farm has been fading for a while. And one of the points that is kind of reflected in this story, um, and it's not just the larger corporate farms, it's um, just land, 
land development in general is taking away some of the uh, farmland we have, um, as you mentioned here in New York, but across the country. That's great. So thanks for calling that to our attention, and it's a good idea for a future interview with somebody. Okay, and the second book, we're moving from current times, or almost current times, back a little bit in time. So the next title is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe by Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry. And what this is, it's kind of a pushback on the idea we have of the medieval period being the Dark Ages, uh, following the fall of Rome in Europe, to really reflect that even though, again, the Dark Ages, this was a time castles were built, trade was expanded, cultures mixed with each other, um, from all the way of Northern Africa to um, Saudi Arabia, all the way up to the Volga River into what is now Russia, and the way that these groups interacted with each other, um, understood each other, uh, the advancements that were made, the pushing back of popular um, ideas we have, like the Vikings, who in some ways could be argued to have existed since the time of the Roman period. Um, but they could either invade you or they could be trading partners. It's not just a horned guy showing up on a, <laughs> on a ship <laughs> waving an axe. Uh, or at the end of the opera. <laughs> yes, or at the end of the opera. Um, there's an example. In the Byzantine Empire, there was a set of the royal guard that were um, Vikings that had shown up in Turkey, liked it, decided to stay, and were taken on as a first mercenary group and then a personal guard um, to the uh, in the Byzantine Empire. That's really interesting, and I like how both these books are looking at sort of historical trends and changes and things to be considered of, certainly different time periods. Do you have a special interest in history? I... I mean, I enjoy history, I think, as much as anyone. I just like looking at the things that I didn't learn in a textbook. Um, I know, you know, I know the names and the dates, but what are the things going on around them? Um, especially when we think of when things were written down and recorded. That's, you know, uh, the Vikings have interested me. They, again, the raiders, the great warriors, the people sailing across the ships, less known for their legal structure. <laughs> well, thank you. And I know that's not your only interest because you've brought a manga to us in the past. So I see your third book is Keeping That Tradition Alive. Uh, yes, in keeping with tradition, I have brought another manga. It is titled How Do We Relationship by Tammy Full. Uh, it's the pen name of the author. And the title really does give away the storyline. When we encounter most romance stories, it's mostly romantic comedy or dramatic action where get to the end of the book, they hug, they kiss, the music swells, the credits roll. This starts at that point and then asks the questions um, that most people may not think of in a story. What do you learn in the first week, the first month you're in a new relationship? What do you figure out with your partner? 
Are they allergic to anything? Do they not like a certain type of food? Are they comfortable in, uh, going to a concert? Do they not like going to a concert? It's these questions that come up after the relationship is established and you're still learning about each other. Am I right that manga is still primarily for a younger audience that might be facing these issues for the first time? It has been changing. Um, what has been translated coming in from Japan? Um, they have had a longer tradition of um, different, different age groups reading manga. Um, so there are still plenty of hero action shows, but there are also more mature topics, um, and those are beginning to be translated now. Um, so this is something that, yes, an older teen could read and enjoy, but also adults could find um, something good in. Well, thank you. So that's The Farmer's Lawyer, The Bright, B-R-I-G-H-T, Ages, and How Do We Relationship? But I know that uh, the library offers a lot more than just books, so let's get to some of the other things that are happening here. Yes, so we have a few events coming up. Um, on Wednesday, the 16th, we have a f uh, earring-making uh, class going on. That is at 6 p.m. Uh, registration is still available. And then moving into December, we have a um, folk art star-making workshop coming up. That is on Friday, December 9th at 2. And then on... I was disappointed to see that you don't really make a real star. These are ornaments, right? Yes, uh, they are uh, ornaments, yes. Um, and then moving into Tuesday the 13th, we have another um, felt stocking ornament making um, with uh, one of our uh, staff members, Chloe. So registrations for both of those events are still um, up. Do people have to bring anything, or are all the supplies provided? Supplies are provided um, for, the, for the class and the workshop, um, but we are currently taking uh, donations for any crafting materials that you uh, can't see yourself using um, to help us continue these art programs here at the library. And if somebody had like a special piece of jewelry or something that they wanted to put into the ornament, they can just bring things and make their own designs, right? Of course. Terrific. Anything else coming up? Uh, nope. Just hope everyone has a good holiday coming up. Okay. And then um, speaking of holidays, I know that you'll probably be closed for different days. So I assume you'll be closed for Thanksgiving. Closing early on the day before? Yes. So uh, Wednesday, the day before, we will be closing at 5 p.m. and then we will be closed for Thanksgiving Day itself, opening again on Friday at 9. Well, congratulations on having a holiday, a well-deserved mini break. Have a great Thanksgiving and thanks for joining us now. I hope you do as well. Thank you. You will find the book titles and descriptions along with this story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Last week, Electronic Disturbance Theater 2.0 came to the sanctuary for a Be the Media workshop. To reflect on the event and their work, 
they joined Sina Bazilla Hickey in the radio studio. So we just got off an incredible evening with the Be the Media workshop with Electronic Disturbance Theater 2.0. And for listeners who may not know your collective, the work that you do, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is uh, Ricardo Dominguez. I'm a professor at the University of California, San Diego. And I was a part of Electronic Disturbance Theater 1.0 in the 1990s, and then with Amy Sarah uh, with uh, 2.0 in um, electronic disturbance activity. So we are two of five people. My name is Amy Sarah Carroll. Our collaborators are Brett Stahlbaum, Ellie Merman, and Misha Cardenas. Wonderful. Tonight was not only just a presentation from the two of you, it included workshops, which Electronically, it was very, it was very um, lo-fi. Yeah, lo-fi. <laughs> it was, it was a lot of cutting out and drawing. Could you talk about how you conveyed your message tonight? Well, uh, Amy and I um, have been considering the best sort of uh, ways of, you know, meeting the community here, and uh, I've always uh, been interested in a conversation between. Hi-fi culture, lo-fi culture, and no-fi culture. And the importance of no-fi culture being uh, the proactive impulse, the core of any hi-fi or lo-fi activity. Uh, so I think uh, Amy's gestures of drawing the border and... Undocumentation, mm -hmm. yeah. We did not want to arrive and offer a presentation that participated in a kind of banking model. We were interested in engaging our audience. So this was what really made us want to think about what are some gestures that we can think about together so we can talk about our work and offer you a trajectory, a, a really brief trajectory of our practice. But we were also interested in seeing you know, like how a conversation could be generated. And you referenced the um, Draw a Line workshop, which was the first part of it. And through that, we learned about your work on the border. So you have done some art on NAFTA in a book. And then there was also a uh, project that you talked about, which was the Geopoetic... It's the transporter immigrant tool. It's a geopoetic system. It's a uh, tool that was developed um, in 2007. It used a very inexpensive platform, an iMotorola 355, uh, which is like n absolutely low-fi compared to a hi-fi cell phone now. And the idea was to create a locative poetic system of sustenance for people crossing the um, Mexico-U.S. border, specifically in an area called Anza Borrego in Southern California, where activists have been water caching since 2000. And so working with them, it was a way to develop a simple compass-like tool that would leave, uh, lead an individual to water, 
but also uh, offer them uh, survival poetry, uh, how to read the landscape, uh, how to read uh, the stars in order to find access and safety. And as we developed the tool and worked with community uh, activists who deal with this, um, it really blossomed into uh, shifting the hi-fi vision that we have of smartphones and global positioning systems to what we call the a geopoetic system or dislocative media uh, that um, offered the potential for tools to redirect uh, the notions of what poetry does, uh, how survival and languaging are an important aspect of human existence, if you will. So not just drinking water, not just surviving to cross the land, but also a kind of awareness that human beings carry with them a deep aesthetic knowledge as well. Yeah, this really, um, the idea for the project came out of um, lengthy conversations within our collective. And this was, you know, 2010 is what we're talking about. So this is a project that um, emerged, really, we were developing it, thinking it in the years um, 2008 to uh, 2010. And um, the project was truncated in some ways because um, we were put under federal investigation, but it also became a discursive intervention. And we've really been thinking about the life of the project, regrets we have, but also ways that it emerged with a life of its own that we couldn't fully imagine when we began to work on it. It is interesting how from my understanding, there was the surveillance and the key to it was art because art is often not taken seriously as a viable way of communicating and expressing ideas. Yeah, I mean, art was um, the kind of crux of the project that created, uh, I don't want to say a camouflage for the project, but a way in which the project was not read simply as a, um, a federal offense, right? Which would be aiding and abetting crossers. So um, the project also, when I say it developed its own kind of circulation, that was within a museum and gallery circuit, right? So, um, which also, again, gave it a stamp of approval being art versus activism. I know you're interested in this term we were using, artivism. Yes. So this might be a nice segue. Yes, and artivism, we were also talking before this, how art is really crucial to the success of any movement. Um, and I'd love for you to talk more about your labeling your own collective as artivism and how you use it. Well, I, I think uh, at the core is that it's artist-driven, uh, that it is focused on art based questions, and it tries to answer them as art-based reflections. So in the same way a painter or a sculptor or a musician might consider a line, uh, a, a color, uh, a form, for artivists we're thinking about uh, that element that would 
help activate, support, reflect, intervene uh, within an activist sensibility, uh, but the priority is the art sensibility. Art as social force field, but also as social amplification, I think is important in artivism. I should say we did not coin the term artivism, so it's definitely within a certain tradition that was really emerging in the 1990s and earlier that was an incorporation of art into, um, and really thinking the role of art and poetry in certain instances within social movements. So um, we think of our work as operating in that tradition. Art first, activism as a place in which that thought, that deep fact of what the problems and issues are, um, are key as well. So, artivism is a way to synthesize uh, both the importance of art for us as practitioners and artists, and our concern with the knowledge base and focus that activism uh, requires and needs. And so, it's a synthesizing term an activating term, and at the same time allows art a certain presence that it might not if we say activism. Or maybe not art first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to the sanctuary. It was an incredible pleasure. We could go on much longer, but in our limited time left, you have this beautiful book that's this low-key black book with some... Uh, Textures. Yeah, some some type that's that's mm -hmm. hidden almost with some silver uh, punctuation on top of it. So could you well, read a poem? What's funny is that uh, it's the letter by congressman calling for the investigation. Actually, most of the noises uh -huh. of the cover is um, uh, denunciations of the project. <laughs> uh -huh. And some poems, but a lot of them are actually denunciations. And so we wanted the interior of the book to be quiet and the exterior to be very noisy, all of the kind of cacophony around the project. Interesting. And you've chosen a poem for us. Yes, I think it would be really interesting if we read this simultaneously in Spanish and English. Would that be too weird? Great. I love it. Which you want to read the Spanish and I'll read the English? All right. Is this good? Okay. Ready? The desert, desert is an ecosystem with a logic of sustainability, of orientation, unique unto itself. For example, the barrel cactus, known otherwise as the compass cactus, stockpiles moisture. It also affords direction, as clear as an arrow or a constellation. It leans south. Orient yourself by this mainstay, or by flowering plants that growing towards the sun face south in the northern hemisphere. That was really great. Thank you so much for coming to the Sanctuary for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Amy and Ricardo. Muchas gracias. Thank you for inviting us. This event was documented and the video will be available shortly. Sanctuary TV is a place to find it and 
If you follow our newsletter, we'll let you know that way. For this week's Poetry Bucket, Tom Francis speaks about local poetry, feminism, and motherhood with Mary Panza. According to her own bio, Mary Panza has been a mainstay on the Albany poetry scene since 1988. She's been witness to countless open mics, naked poets, fires, drunks, chapbooks, career changes, organizations, both coming and going, festivals, and great poetry and spoken word. Mary hosted two long-running open mics, five years at Borders in the late 90s, and Poets Speak Loud at Lark Tavern and then McGeary's for 15 years until the pandemic hit in 2020. Last December, Mary read her poem, We're Barefoot People, at the first Year in Review spoken word event at the Linda. She asked me how to walk in high heels. We don't, I told her. We are barefoot people. The summer I was 13 is a blur to me now. I had mono and can remember going to sleep in early July, waking up for some orange juice and going back to sleep till the middle of August. I can remember for be, being tired for weeks, but wanting to go outside and show off my 30 pound weight loss to the kids on my block. Hindsight being 2020, I should have stayed on the couch with my mother close by. We should have watched what Erica Kane was up to on that particular day. We should have talked about what was really happening around us. Mom and I should have had an exit strategy that didn't involve Valium or Carlo Rossi. We should have done a lot of things we didn't do. He was sick of me being sick. He thought it was a ploy to get out of having a job. The man who called, my, called himself my father was a bastard. He comes to me in the form of saltines and milk. It was a Depression-era dessert. My daughter loves saltines. She tells me they're pretty good with milk. I spit between my index and middle finger. It's a gesture taught to me by a book. He may be blind to her in hell, but he still manages to get a dig in at me. He was a bastard. My daughter is outside in the summer. She swims and plays and has as much fun as a 13-year-old thinks is cool. She plays tennis. She is tall and smart and proud. I pray she never has to fall asleep to escape, only to wake up and still be tired. We don't wear high heels. We are barefoot people. I had mono when I was 13. And it kind of, during COVID, it just kind of reminded me of that, like, that summer where I couldn't go anywhere and I don't remember much of it. You know, all these memories kept coming back of like, I, I remember waking up like in July to get a glass of orange juice and just going back to bed. And during the day, I, I would lay on the couch and my mother would sit in her chair and we'd watch soap operas. And I would have to like get into my bed before my father got home because he was convinced I was faking it. So I didn't have to get a summer job. No, I was 13 and I had already been working since I was 10 or 11 babysitting. And I, I mean, I had mono, you know, it was, it was clear. I went to the doctor I was on antibiotics. He wasn't a good person. 
and he didn't want me and it just all of that kind of because I came so much later in their lives um he just didn't want me he didn't want to start over he didn't want a family he certainly didn't want a girl I don't know that my life would have been easier had I been born a boy I don't think so because my brother had it pretty tough with him I just I think he was done and that's kind of what it's about and when during the summers we would you know because I was on fourth street in south Troy between Madison and the canal we just walk around barefoot like we were all you know the neighbor the neighbors and all the kids my age we just we'd run around barefoot and you know that summer I, I really couldn't be barefoot I asked Mary when she started telling stories and putting pen to paper. When I was little, Nana Panza lived with us for a short amount of time. We'd play hide and seek and Nana wouldn't look for me. And it was usually, you know, she was smarter than anyone gave her credit for. And it was usually during the edge of night, which was her soap opera. So when I was little, I used to draw stick people soap operas. To this day, I still watch Young and the Restless. I mean, I, I grew up on, on stories, if you will. And so I would draw these little stick figures in these little scenarios, nothing dirty. I was a kid. But then I could change the story. And it was really just between me and myself. And I would draw these pictures and then I would put them in a certain order. And then if it was a different day and it was a different story, I'd, I'd move the order. So, yeah. Um, I didn't really start writing poetry till um, I was much older. After writing poetry for a while, Mary decided to share her work at a local open mic. But back in 1988, there was only one game in town, the legendary QE2 open mic hosted by Tom Nattel. I got up to the mic and there was feedback. And Tom Nattel adjusted the mic and I just said, look, if you don't want me up here, say so. And everyone started laughing. And when I heard, when I heard them laugh, I'm like, oh, these are, they get it. These are my people. This was at the QE2 and it was uh, summer of 1988. I mean, I can remember everybody distinctly. Then afterwards I got applause and I, I loved that. And it, it just made me feel valued and that somebody heard what I was saying. Although I was, it was drivel and nonsense. People heard it. I guess to me at that time, it wasn't drivel and nonsense. Why did you keep coming back? I just liked how, I, I, this is going to sound crazy, me saying this about the QE2, but I liked the way it smelled. It was raw and it was dirty and there was no pretense behind it. And you didn't really have to behave and you could say what you want. And, you know, I just, I felt like I found a home and I was young and had to prove myself. I mean, there were people at those open mics getting master's degree and doctor doctrines and, you know, way more educated than I ever planned on being. A theme that runs through most of Mary's poetry is empowerment, standing up for yourself as a woman and a mother. So I asked Mary if she considers herself a feminist poet. And I was always under the impression that feminism was, 
you had the right, you had the freedom to choose and you could choose whatever. And I would never tell another woman, you're doing it wrong. You need to choose for yourself. And that's what feminism should be. Should be like you, you have the breathing room. Not that I wanted to like run out and have kids because that, you know, wasn't in my plan till it happened. But it was just, I don't believe in putting somebody else down for their life choices. Right. And that's what I felt like it was. And that there wasn't, that that wasn't who I, I, I just don't, I've never been much, I've never been one to really judge how another person lives their life and makes them happy. As long as you're not hurting anybody, I really don't care. She was well on her way to living the rest of her life as a party girl when, at age 37, the party really began and she became a mother. How did that affect her writing? I don't talk about, like, sex or men as much. Protective over Julia and her privacy. And, you know, that's why I haven't really even written a lot about my blog, because right now I'm so engrossed in her life you know, she's 16. I'm trying to, we're trying to get ready for college and stuff like that. So most of the stories I have to tell involve her and I haven't told them because she's still young and she's got the right to that privacy. And for me to tell a story about my experience with her interferes with her privacy. So uh, the original question is how has my writing changed? I think I'm a little more protective and I'm I'm telling my backstory more because for years I didn't. It just wasn't anybody's business and I wasn't ready to do it. After 150 years of therapy, I can talk about these things and not have a nervous breakdown. Mary Panza is currently vice president of the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and she'll be hosting the 2022 edition of the Year in Review event at the Linda on Central Avenue in Albany on Saturday, December 17th. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. And every week, Tom Francis digs into the poetry archives to highlight a poetry performance and the poet. Find previous poet profiles on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And that is our show. Caitlin will be back next week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host engineer. And I'm David. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Marsha Lazarus, Bria Barthel, Tom Francis, and my co-host David Moore. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.